Planetary Society All-Stars review the spectacular year in space on my last show as host this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Stick around as I welcome Sarah Alamed, Bruce Betts, Casey Dreyer, and Ray Poletta for the most enjoyable look back across 2022 you'll hear in this week for annual reviews of everything. Then stay a few minutes longer as Bruce and I welcome Sarah as his new partner for What's Up. You'll also be treated to their picks among your suggestions for what I should take on next as I end over 20 years as the host of Planetary Radio. With apologies to Douglas Adams, so long and thanks for all the data. That's the headline for the story about the end of the InSight mission on Mars that leads the December 23 edition of our free weekly newsletter, The Downlink. We'll have much more to say in a few minutes about the spacecraft that has revealed the deep interior of the Red Planet by tracking Mars quakes. You'll also read about the beginning of the United Arab Emirates lunar rover mission named Rashid. It is expected to reach our big natural satellite in April. As always, there's much, much more at planetary.org downlink. I love this end-of-year tradition we started many moons ago, but we've rarely had so much to celebrate. As you'll hear, it's also a celebration of this program's great transition. I am more confident than ever that Planetary Radio is in the best of hands with Sarah, Bruce, and my other colleagues. I look forward to next week when, for the first time in 20.1 years, I won't be facing the daunting deadline for completion of another show. As I've said, you haven't heard the last of me. I so look forward to continuing my conversations with the real guardians of the galaxy that I've brought you every week. They are my heroes. And here's the secret. You are too. Your enthusiastic loyalty has enabled and inspired me for two decades. I am grateful beyond words, though I hope to use some of my newfound time to put into words my appreciation as I reply to more of the hundreds of wonderful messages you have sent. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. It's not like it's your first time for any of you. But it sure is, I, I think, I mean, were we all together doing this a year ago? My memory is weak. I'm very old. Welcome, everyone. Yeah, I was not here last year, so this is exciting. That, of course, Sarah Alamed, the incoming host. Stay tuned, because it's only a week away as we publish this show that Sarah will be taking over Planetary Radio. Casey, you are the most festive. Thank you for wearing the, uh, the elf hat. Uh, it's a Santa hat, Matt, to be accurate. <laughs> Sorry. Come With on. the big guy. And uh, yeah, I wore it for the, this radio program, so I thought it was appropriate for radio. And I like the red and green uh, lights in the back there behind you that you dialed in. Thank you very much. Yep. It really is very festive. That, of course, the Senior Space Policy Advisor for the Planetary Society, Casey Dreyer, also our Chief Advocate. Ray Paletta, now I think I have your new title right, Director of Content and Engagement. Welcome to you as well. Thank you so much, Matt. I've got my scarf on. Uh, it's I love it. here on the East Coast, so <laughs> I'll pass that off as being festive. I was just going to say, lovely, lovely scarf. Thank uh, you, Matt. Bruce, 
Not, no scarf, but a, a first-generation planetary radio T-shirt. Thank you very much. You're welcome very much. <laughs> the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. We have gathered, as we do every year at the end of the year, to uh, talk about the year in space, the year just passed, and you might even hear a little bit about the year to come. We're just going to race through topics here, because there are a ton of them. It was a big year in space. To get us started, Sarah... Let's talk about Artemis. Oh, let's talk about Artemis, because there were so many amazing things that happened this year. But that Artemis launch, <laughs> we, we actually, everyone on this call here was there in August yeah. at Kennedy Space Center to try to see that first attempt of the launch. It didn't go off as planned, obviously. It got scrubbed. But it finally did launch three months later in November, November 16th. Were you guys all watching that live stream? Of course. I think we would all be fired if we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Mandatory watching. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I watched it. Yeah, really. Oh, <laughs> no, well, I, ex I actually did. Yeah, I could see you not watching it just out of fear that it didn't actually launch, you know, or just maybe because you just know, it got scrubbed assumption. a few times there. But Bruce doesn't it did, have the it best did launch. Record with uh, causing scrubs. No, so. it's... <laughs> he actually mentioned that when we were at KSC. Yeah. We it's were like, standing there. He's like, I'm here, therefore it will not launch today. There's a strong correlation, <laughs> which I believe, Bruce, is the same as causation, right? Is yes, right? yes, that's what science goes. says. Yeah. Yes. Goes, yeah. yeah, that's why it should never be sent to launches. Although it, I only cause delays with that, but our missions sometimes I cause whole launches. Catastrophic I, think, <laughs> I think Bruce does have special dispensation uh, for violation of causality. I think that was put in place in perpetuity about 40 years ago. So. <laughs> but, you, you know, you never know. Maybe the fact that Bruce was there to watch it be scrubbed that time was actually the reason why it launched so successfully when it finally happened. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> All right. We, we broke that for that perfect record. I'm mildly yeah. horrified by this discussion. All right. This is really going over the top here. I, I, I just want to once again boast about the fact that I was there to read the Orion capsule when it came back into the San Diego Naval Base, or Naval Base San Diego, as the Navy likes to say, on uh, the USS Portland, which was just a spectacular experience. And, and people can check that out on uh, last week's uh, Planetary Radio. And we are now looking forward to, what, a couple of years? Yeah, it's going to be two years before Artemis II goes up. We will get to hear a little bit more about that in one of my first shows, actually my second show with Jeremy Graber. Assistant Launch Director at Kennedy Space Center, talks a little bit about what's going to be going on with Artemis 2 and Artemis 3. They're going to be the first Artemis missions that are crewed. So I'm, you know, I'm really excited. I cannot wait to see people land with Artemis 3. It's going to blow our minds. <laughs> Casey, are, are we now, because this has been so successful, should we be looking forward to like Artemis 45? Yeah, basically. I, I mean, I can't emphasize how important the success of Artemis 1 was for the program. You know, they've been working for over 10 years on all these pieces of hardware and they worked beautifully be, despite the cost overruns, the critique that they get from observers, uh, from all the delays, everything worked. And now NASA's on the cusp of locking in long-term contracts with Boeing, Lockheed, Northrop, all the providers and suppliers that build the SLS, that build Orion, not just for a couple of SLS launches, but for dozens. So we are going to be seeing the SLS rocket and Orion and annual trips to the moon, if not more, hmm. for the foreseeable future. And I should point out, that's not just my opinion. That is law. That was passed into law by Congress this year in the Chips and Science Bill, which contained NASA authorization that mandated, at minimum, one SLS launch a year for Artemis 
in perpetuity. That's okay with me. We will leave Artemis behind in this uh, race through 2022 because there were uh, things that were just as significant to a lot of our audience, including the amazing success of a certain space telescope. Ray, talk to us about the JWST. JWST has to be one of my favorite things of this year. And I know that technically it launched a year ago, almost today as we're recording this, it launched December 25th, 2021. Hard to believe that it's been such a short amount of time and yet we've gotten so many incredible results. It's really cool just to see the distant views of galaxies that it's been able to capture, planets in our own solar system. I know that the deep field rightfully gets a lot of shine, but that picture of Neptune and the rings, it's like, come on, what's better than that? And Matt just had his moment to gush about Orion, but mm -hmm. I have to talk about James Webb Space Telescope because I got an invite to JPL to be there on the day that they revealed the first images. And I tell you, you're trying not to cry looking at those images, seeing that Carina Nebula for the first time. I'm surrounded by like important NASA people and I just had to keep it together. That was, that was difficult. I feel so fortunate that I got to be on the other side of the glass from that telescope as it was going through the final steps uh, here in Southern California before shipping off to the Cape. I'll tell you, you know, it's one of those Grand Canyon moments. You don't realize how big the damn thing is until you're standing in front of it. And uh, it's just magnificent. After hearing all the stories, all the worries from all the scientists and engineers about, okay, here's the part I'm most worried won't work right, won't unfold the way it's supposed to, to see it just work. I mean, what a, what a mechanical miracle as well as an as a observational miracle. Yeah, it's an engineering marvel, uh, it's, and the science potential is amazing. It's, we've only scratched the surface. Worth every penny of its $8.8 .8 billion already, I would say, <laughs> unquestionably. And will, as Bruce pointed out, just like the, the potential for this and what it's going to be doing. And again, just another reminder, I mean, JWST succeeding and Artemis 1 succeeding in the same year for NASA, I'd say this puts it up as one of top, Two. <laughs> I can think of one year of NASA's like success that probably can't be top, but definitely top five years ever for the U.S. Space Agency with these two missions. And I should add, Huge. also, European Space Agency, too, had critical contributions to both Artemis and JWST and, and just really shining in terms of the collaboration between NASA and ESA right now. And let's hope that continues as well. Uh, Ray, we're going to stick with you for one that was a, a very big deal for all of us at the Planetary Society, and that was uh, nudging a, a space rock. God, I love the DART mission so much. It's really a one-of-a-kind thing. I mean, literally, historically, it was, right? This was the first of its kind of testing the kinetic um, deflection technique for asteroids. To recap here, in September, the DART mission had its grand finale when it collided with Dimorphos, right? The asteroid moonlit. I can't believe how much it was able to change the orbit around its parent asteroid Didymos, which for some reason I can only think of Diddy Kong when I say that. I don't know why. There's like a there's a Super <laughs> Smash Brothers thing somewhere in there, right? Yeah, I always think of a uh, Sir Didymus, the little dog in the labyrinth that <laughs> rides on a on a bigger dog. Oh, now you're beyond me. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it was able to change the orbit from 11 hours and 55 minutes to 11 hours and 23 minutes, which is just sm a smashing success. Ah, well done. Uh, Bruce, you're Mr. Planetary Defense around here. That's Dr. Planetary Defense. That's to you. Sorry. <laughs> to, you. To, you. to you, Matt. That's yeah, everyone else is just Bruce, the guy who plays attention to rocks, but... Um, <laughs> 
This is a this is a major major accomplishment. Not only did we hit the asteroid, so it was a technology development that the so-called kinetic impactor technique, which is one of the main ones people are considering if and when, not if, when we find an asteroid headed for Earth to use. And it works theoretically on kind of medium-sized dangerous asteroids cause catastrophe. But understanding the interaction between the spacecraft and the asteroid, and so how much it changed that how much material came out, what size crater it made. They'll be able to extract out the key things to be able to model it better in the future. So when you do have to deflect one, you know, okay, well, if we use this big a spacecraft, this mass at this velocity, at least if it's like uh, that asteroid, this is the kind of effect we'll have. And officially, they will be able to better define the parameter beta which uh, canonically, uh, for some reason, is what is the key parameter of the interaction in energetically between the spacecraft and the asteroid. Good times. Yeah, I'll say. I also want to do a shout out to the Italian Space Agency for yeah. the brilliant success of that little CubeSat, Licia Cube, that gave us that beautiful close-up, more or less close-up view of the impact by uh, DART. It really doesn't get much better. Casey? We're going to continue in the planetary defense vein because you're going to tell us about, I mean, it was a big year, even right up to the last day or two as we speak, for Neo Surveyor. Yeah, the other part of planetary defense, right? Finding the things that could be threats in order to smash things into them. You know, you got to know where they're coming from first before you can do the smashy, smashy bit. Both parts are really critical, right? Like it's, I, I keep making the comparison to COVID where you had to do testing in order to know where your breakouts are happening. And that is what Neo Surveyor is. Neo Surveyor is going to help you find the threat. And then you can invest in deflection like DART, which is the equivalent of a vaccine investment that you're doing in advance, right? These things don't just pull off the shelves. You got to make them figure out how they work and have them ready to go for when a threat happens. And we're starting to do that now, which is, again, the really exciting thing that we're seeing with planetary defense this year. So Neo Surveyor, after literally 15, 16 years of stalled development, delays, endless study after study, despite near-universal support from members of Congress, the public, and, of course, uh, members of the Planetary Society, we saw a really important movement this year, <laughs> kind of a one-step-forward, one two-steps-back situation where the program itself was authorized by Congress into law. We saw funding for NeoSurveyor, however, get cut by NASA itself at their own behest due to unrelated overruns and other aspects of planetary science. Planetary Society members worked really hard this year to really advocate to restore that money. And as we're recording this, we're looking at a final passage occurring tomorrow of the U.S. budget that includes NASA funding that will restore $50 million more than what NASA had proposed. So, but puts it about to half of where it should have been. That's actually one of the largest increases to any science mission this year in this budget. So we're really happy to see that. And then more critically, NASA itself reversed course, fully committed now and has made a formal cost and schedule commitment to Neo Surveyor to Congress that will now launch in 2028. So this mission is functionally locked in. In, in NASA history, extremely rare for any project that makes it this far in the development to be canceled. So this is about as good as it gets, barring any sort of catastrophe, let's say, being crushed from above somehow in the next four years. 
crushed by an asteroid. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. <laughs> Sorry. Come in the next four years. Uh, I just wanted to get give additional historical perspective. Since I really got heavily involved in planetary defense so 20-some years ago, this has been what people have called for. And more and more, planetary defense community was like, this is what we need. And, you know, whether it was, you know, surveyor or some other permutation, but an infrared telescope placed at an uh, orbit that would be inwards of where the Earth's orbit is so you can see more asteroids would actually increase our discovery rate, as well as simultaneously being able to characterize the asteroids tremendously. So although the ground-based has improved enormously over these same period, it's always been, we want a mission that does this, and NeoSurveyor will finally be that mission. Congrats to good friend of the Planetary Society, Amy Meinzer, and now at the University of Arizona, and her entire team, because we also heard just in the last couple of days as, uh, as we are recording this, that the spacecraft is actually now under construction. Very, very exciting stuff. And Sarah, if you don't have Amy, back on the show soon. I'm going to be very upset with you. Oh, I'm really hoping. I actually met her many years ago at Griffith Observatory. She had a lot of great things to say about the Asteroids video game, which I wanted to. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, she was fantastic. I'd love to have her back on. Can't beat black and white vector graphics, right? We can continue on uh, with you, Sarah. There's that other planet out there, the red one. It was also a pretty significant year from, in fact, There's so much just in the last day or two that has been happening at Mars and across the solar system. Yeah, we're we're actually (laughs) in a really interesting moment on Mars because there are so many missions going on concurrently. And just yesterday we heard that, uh, you know, sadly, we've reached the end of the InSight mission on Mars. That's the mission that went down to Mars and has been measuring Mars quakes. So it, it discovered this really interesting thing earlier this year. It picked up the biggest Mars quake we have ever recorded. I think it happened back in May. It's five times bigger than any other earthquake we've ever measured on Mars. So that can tell us a lot about what's going on internally. But sadly, the mission's solar panels got covered in dust. As we expected, this wasn't something that happened on accident, but it did lead to the end of the mission. But at the very same time, elsewhere on Mars, the Perseverance rover set down its first sample of Martian rock onto the surface. So end of one mission, beginning of another, but this is all building up to a much larger thing, which is that we are going to try to bring these samples from Mars all the way back to Earth. That is amazing. And there have been a lot of changes to the way that this mission is going to happen, hypothetically, because of that cute little helicopter that's just tuka-tuka-ing around Mars right now, The Ingenuity Mars helicopter has been such a success and has lasted so much longer than we expected that they're going to send two little Mars helicopters with the Mars sample return mission to hopefully pick up these samples and bring them back to blast them off to Earth. So we're hoping we're going to get those samples back in uh, 2033. I think that, too, is is a collaboration between NASA and also the European Space Agency. So another great example of international collaboration going on there. If you haven't seen it, I've mentioned this before on the show, find the renderings of these little descendants of Ingenuity and their cute little arms. They have these cute little robotic arms that are designed to pick up the tube and bring them back to to Obama to be brought home. It's just, it's wonderful to see. I just want to say pour out some eggnog for insight. A lot of good years. (laughs) (laughs) We'll miss you, buddy. 
Uh, hopefully not the last uh, seismometer that uh, we'll see on the surface of Mars. We need a bunch of them up there, just like we have down here on Earth. Bruce? Yeah, insight was great, but I want to point out two things. One, you really need to stop anthropomorphizing spacecraft. No. Uh, Why should I do that? Because they're robotic, and they, they're designed to stop working, and then, then everyone gets Bruce, didn't sadder. you see Goodnight Oppie? That's the opposite <laughs> lesson that you take. No, that that's movie. why I didn't watch it. I, 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 I couldn't handle it emotionally. That's why but more importantly, put big googly eyes on all future robotic missions. <laughs> <laughs> that's our new policy, by the way. Uh, yes, definitely. I miss that. Oh man. Okay, we can discuss that offline. I just, I, I kind of missed it. I wanted to hear from Sarah again. What, what noise ingenuity makes? What noise it makes? Oh yeah. What was that? Was that like tuka 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 tuka? Okay, the sound thanks. of a tiny helicopter in my brain. Is that just my onomatopoeia? You know, we do our pop culture references here, and this is one of my last opportunities. The birds on George of the Jungle that they used as telephones, because they, <laughs> I guess, communicated with each other psychically, psychically went, yeah, bring, tookie, tookie. And that's immediately what I thought of when you said that. Maybe that's so. where I picked that up from when I was a child. There you go. <laughs> but I got to say, I'm really hoping, hoping that they send something like Insight back to Mars just because that that little uh, the little mole that was supposed to dig beneath the Martian yeah. surface and get some temperature readings down there, it didn't actually do what we wanted it to because it couldn't pound itself down into that Martian dirt. There was just something a little bit different about what was going on there. So I'm hoping we get a second chance at that so we can actually get that data and learn more about Mars's internal temperature. As sad as that was, because of course we spent a lot of time talking about that instrument on planetary radio, even after they had to give up on it. And this was a European instrument. I think, if nothing else, it demonstrated that we still have a lot to learn. Well, also just reiterated, and it's almost a cliche, but it's true. Space is hard. Yeah. Strangely, <laughs> and, you know, people get used to it, but putting something on the surface of Mars, not trivial. And actually having things work in an environment that you've never been to, it's challenging. But the rewards are amazing. Sarah, we're going to stick with you. We'll skip over Third Rock and go right into <laughs> Venus. And the news is not entirely good there, but there are the good things ahead. Yeah, there, there is uh, you know, some existing science going on there. We've uh, had the Japanese Akatsuki mission going around Venus for quite a while, looking for things like lightning and getting some, some good uh, images there. But what's really been interesting over the last few years is the development in the story about whether or not there is evidence of potential life up in the atmosphere of Venus, maybe some microbial life. Penguins. Penguins, yeah. If anybody has been listening to the show over the last few months, Jane Greaves from Cardiff University did come on the show to talk a bit about these detections of phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus. Now, it's still debatable whether or not that, that is actually what it is, but we're hopefully going to get a lot more readings on this in the future because there's like an army of Venus missions headed that direction. There, there's two missions, uh, Veritas and Da Vinci, that NASA wants to send. Unfortunately, uh, the Veritas mission has been delayed by about three years. There was a, a situation with the Psyche mission, which necessitated a delay to this other mission. That's okay, though. We'll get there eventually and get all that science. But there's also Rocket Lab's private mission that they're hoping to send to Venus. That's supposed to be launching next year, I think, that wants to just straight drop a probe into the atmosphere and get direct detections of things that might help us understand whether or not there is life on Venus or just understand more about the atmosphere in general. And I know, too, that the Chinese Space Agency is debating whether or not to send a mission to Venus as well. So 
there's a lot of Venus science coming coming our way. ESA, the European Space Agency, also has a mission going. Yeah. yeah. So it's a Venus party in the next few years. Casey, do you have anything to say about this this idea of a private company getting into interplanetary exploration? Obviously excited to see if it works. This also dovetails into the CLIPS, Commercial Lunar Payload Services, program really ramping up next year with its first scheduled deliveries. And we're testing, I think this goes to show we're in this period of space exploration where I keep saying we're ahistorical. We don't have any historical comparisons to make with what is happening now with these new entrants coming in and doing their own missions like uh, Rocket Lab's uh, Venus mission. And then also, of course, the commercial providers at the moon. We don't know if this is going to work. It's all an experiment. It's truly exciting. The science team that they put together for the Rocket Lab mission is, is very high profile, very extraordinary opportunity there for them to try this out and really to trailblaze a new way of gaining data bringing it back to the scientific community. Now, I think the really interesting perspective from this though, on a policy angle is what does it mean for private companies to begin collecting data that has up till now fully been the domain of public interest? And how is that data going to be disseminated and to whom? And will it always be free or will it be sold? This is, again, opening a whole new bag of worms on this that we don't really know what the outcome is going to be that can really overturn how the scientific community has approached planetary exploration for its entire existence, which has been solely a government activity. Mm. Ray, we'll move on to the rest of the solar system. It falls to you to introduce us. There's an awful lot to cover here. Take your time. <laughs> the rest of the solar system, I'm trying to make it as fast <laughs> as possible. I've got to give a shout out to Juno, right? Juno is in the second year of its extended mission, where it's taking a closer look at Jupiter's rings and many of its moons. So that's been really interesting to follow. It's sort of finished the main quest of the video game, and now it's doing all the cool bonus missions and side quests, which arguably is one of the most fun parts. In 2021, we saw those great pictures from Juno's flyby of Ganymede. And this year, we saw those remarkably detailed close-ups from Europa. Europa is only one-fourth the diameter of Earth, but its ocean may contain twice as much water as all of Earth's ocean combined. How, how do you fit all the oceans in there? Where do they go? It would sure be a shame to not find at least one thing swimming in all that water. I'm hoping for space narwhals. It's happening. <laughs> With like all it. that ice, it makes so much sense. Think about it. Yeah, and they need that, right? To stick. Yeah, right. Like an ice pick. I love it. I love it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what do you think all those scratchy things are on the surface? It's just the narwhals <laughs> and their tusks. Think about it, NASA. Yeah. All right, that's a paper for DPS next year. <laughs> yeah. But I'm really hoping to learn more about what's going on with these images of Jupiter's moons from Juno. Uh, hopefully in probably January, we'll have Scott Bolton on uh, and yeah. we'll talk a little bit more about that. So I'm excited to have that conversation. Those IO pictures were really extraordinary. Yeah. The, the ones that just came down in the last few weeks. Is IO or do people say EO? I prefer IO. I say I.O. I say I.O. also. There's a long debate in the community about that, and uh, most people say I.O., but some go for E.O. Okay, I think we've reached <laughs> consensus. I.O. it is. <laughs> I.O. it is. Everyone's favorite little volcano moon. Yeah, those pictures were really incredible. I mean, just to see the, the constant eruptions, I feel like there's just so much. We know some about it, but it's in many ways a very untapped space, so uh, looking forward to all the Juno data that we can get on that. Okay, where next? I guess the next thing we could talk about is Osiris-Rex bringing it back to Earth. Um, as we all know, 
Osiris Rex is on its way back to Earth after sampling from the asteroid Bennu. It is scheduled to drop its sample on Earth in Utah's West Desert on September 24th, 2023. So that's something for us to look forward to next year. I'm really excited to see a chunk of science literally just parachute out of the sky into the desert. I don't know what I need to do to be there, but I will do everything in my power to get there. (laughs) I was talking once to one of the uh, scientists who worked on one of the uh, missions that return material from out there. And, you know, we were doing it live. And all of a sudden, he was in the middle of talking about something to do with the mission. This thing streaked across the sky. I mean, it was literally a a, 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 a human-created um, uh, fireball. Meteor. Thank you. And uh, it was just spectacular. So I, I bet you'll have company out there when that happens. Mm-hmm. It's got to be spectacular because we saw those images of what happened when the samples of asteroid Ryugu came in from the Hayabusa mission. Yeah. Those pictures in Australia, that beautiful streak across the sky, that was mind-blowing. I hope we get something like that. Yeah. yeah. And of course, that, that sample return capsule is chock full of rocks. I mean, they almost couldn't close the thing because there was so much stuff in there. And that is just what a bonanza that's going to be for scientists on Earth. I was making jokes with my friends. It was like it was playing Chubby Bunny and put too many marshmallows in his mouth. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> All right. Well, we could keep talking about the solar system for the rest of our lives. And hopefully we will, actually. Uh, but Casey, let's bring it back home. Because once again, my gosh, so much happening at the end of the year. Tell us what's happening with uh, the budget outlook for for NASA. We finally have a congressional budget. Again, as we're recording this, likely to pass. Doesn't mean it will, but let's assume it will because it's supposed to (laughs) unless something catastrophic happens. It's overall pretty good news. It's it's not what the president requested, which was an 8% increase to NASA. It was a great budget. Congress was willing to give a 5.5% increase, which is still $1.3 billion more than what NASA got last year. However, given the consequences of inflation and the cost of labor, it's questionable if that really translates to being able to do more. I think their buying power actually will still probably be a little less next year than it was this year because of those problems. However, I've been doing this long enough, we've all been doing this long enough to never not appreciate a NASA budget increase. This is the 10th year in a row now that NASA's budget has grown in absolute dollars. That has never happened before in NASA history, this winning streak that they've been gone. This growth has mainly been applied to NASA's exploration programs, Artemis, planetary science missions, Mars sample return. It's the other aspects of NASA. Earth science didn't grow as much as they requested STEM education didn't grow as much as expected, but overall things were really positive for NASA's exploration, which is the really the key things that we care about here at the Planetary Society. So again, it's just very positive, I think. And again, we can't overstate how important it is that we're seeing NASA's moon missions, NASA's efforts to return humans to the moon, the next Apollo, fully funded. This hasn't happened in my lifetime Matt, I think you're the only person here whose lifetime this has happened in at at any point. Bruce? A little bit when I was a wee pup. (laughs) This is extraordinary. So we were just talking about, we had that great article, uh, Ray, that you helped put together on our website about the 50th anniversary of Apollo 17. This is truly our generation's Apollo moment that we're going to see happen now. And the money is flowing. The hardware is being built. And Congress 
for all the problems that it's taken to get here and all the political compromises we've made, is willing to fund it pretty aggressively. We're talking about $7.5 billion for Artemis-related hardware next year. That's wow. wonderful. Casey, how close does this come to the budget growth path that the Planetary Society was calling for? We were calling for five, five over five, and we're averaging at a little over 4%. Uh, Not bad. So 5% per year for five years, we're averaging a little about five, four, four or so percent. So it's very, very close. And again, our whole argument was it is slow and steady, in, little increase after little increase after little increase. It builds up, right? It builds upon itself over time. This is how they built up the National Institutes of Health to, to the behemoth that it is now. You just small little steps makes it much more palatable for Congress to do a bit at a time year after year than to do one big jump, which is what actually they tried to do in the first year of Artemis under the Trump administration that they could not get through even a Republican Congress for a Republican presidential initiative. And so we're really seeing the benefits of that. Artemis would not be happening now if we hadn't been having this steady growth. And we wouldn't be seeing the incredible science missions that we're seeing under development now, planetary defense missions, if we hadn't seen this growth too. No mm. one has had to, to sacrifice for these advances to happen in these other programs. It's everything all at once, to paraphrase a popular movie that may have come out this year. <laughs> Casey, we'll stick with you now. We've already touched on commercial space developments, but uh, delve into it a little bit further for us. Well, I mean, we shouldn't take for granted that we have commercial crew delivery to the International Space Station still happening at a regular cadence to the point where it's almost uneventful, which is probably the best you could possibly hope for with SpaceX. Still stunning to me that we haven't seen Boeing come through with Starliner this year and its first crewed oh, launch, so they did succeed in their first uncrewed test mission. So we're about to see, I think, next year that that second provider come online. Again, I think we're seeing NASA's big experiment continue to happen where it's in doing a lot of investment right now, and we're waiting for the full return. Obviously, we know that commercial partnerships work well in low Earth orbit. We're seeing huge growth there, huge success there. The question now is, can you extend that to the domain of the moon or even further out? That's what NASA is really investing in with human landing system, which is now SpaceX is the critical partner for landing on the moon, which is, again, quite extraordinary, though it did get a budget boost so that other partners could feasibly come on board with that, particularly Blue Origin, which resubmitted its landing proposal this year. And then the other big uh, aspect is what's going to happen with the International Space Station. The consensus now is that it will be replaced in some form with a commercial orbiting platform, which again is some, an extraordinary ex experiment that we're going to move into here uh, as the US and its partners really offload that responsibility to operate a space station on a commercial basis. Will it work? We have no idea. Every analysis says it probably won't, but they're going to go <laughs> make a good go of it. And in the budget this year, for the first time, uh, we got full funding for what's called Commercial LEO, which is the abstract, the funding vehicle that provides funding for commercial partners to really invest in this development now. I think as we saw the increasing the consequences from the war in Ukraine on Russia's part, Russia's increasing isolation from the rest of the world and the increasing tension, obviously, between Russia and the U.S. manifesting itself in some ways at the International Space Station. So that partnership remains strong. No future partnerships. Russia will not be participating in Artemis. It will be forthcoming. And so we, I think Congress is really waking up to the fact that commercial space stations are the only real viable pathway to having some sort of ongoing presence in low Earth orbit 
where NASA and its allies can send astronauts to in the future. So we really, for the first time, saw the political awareness snap into being there and support the request at about a quarter of a billion dollars this year. You reminded me of something that I'm going to throw in as a bonus question, because it is also something that just happened in the news, talking about those strained relationships between Russia and the United States and Russia and most other nations on Earth. And yet, a couple of days ago as we speak, the head of Roscosmos openly thanked NASA for helping to locate the leak that formed in the Soyuz spacecraft, which is currently docked at the space station. And I said to somebody yesterday, you know, especially with the change in management at Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, that probably had to be cleared through the top. I mean, are we seeing, it sounds like a feeler, but is this just more evidence that space does bring us together? The International Space Station Partnership has worked as designed this year, right? That means even when we had the previous head of uh, Roscosmos, Dmitry Rogozin, saying some pretty extraordinary and inflammatory things, the actual function and relationship and integration never changed. This is where we always have to look at actions over rhetoric. Thankfully, now Rogozin was either reassigned or demoted or however you want to phrase it. And we have Borisov, who's a much more, I'd say, tactful individual and head of Roscosmos. I think that's, that's great that you're seeing the rhetoric match the actions. But at the end of the day, the International Space Station Partnership was designed to not be separable, right? They're too tightly integrated. And that was the point, right? So even if, as we are now in a period of high tension between the US and Russia, because of the invasion of Ukraine, we have, no matter what, one area of joint interest that we share and align our values in, which is maintaining the safety of astronauts and cosmonauts in the International Space Station. And you, that can't just be torn asunder. And I think the Russians realize that and, and understand that there's always going to be that point of, of shared value. So it's, it's good, I'd say, that it, it will maintain. But I think the trouble is then that the future we're seeing this, I think, realization or what I've been saying, a balkanization of approach to space exploration, where we, we may have groups of aligned countries working together instead of the previous post-Cold War era attitude that we all go together for the same purpose. So while the station has worked as designed, it hasn't inspired the subsequent partnerships that we would have hoped to have seen even a few years ago. Let's turn really inward and go to uh, at least a quick review of some of the achievements and the impact that the Planetary Society has had over the course of the uh, year that is about to end. We just did a, a big webcast to review these that uh, went out to our members and donors, but uh, uh, there's some pretty significant stuff here. Let's see. What would be the number one? I don't know. What do you think, Bruce? Uh, I don't know. You? <laughs> you too? No, that's a band and a plane. Yeah, um, yeah. How about light sail, too? Oh, yeah. Why don't you talk about that? Wow, leading questions. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a huge year for uh, light sail, too, our solar sail spacecraft. Uh, we uh, finally re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. The spacecraft burned up, as we knew it would eventually, as we lost the battle with atmospheric drag. And we had stayed up much longer than we expected and uh, got a lot of information about solar sailing and achieved our main goals, which were technologically to demonstrate 
be the first to ever demonstrate with a small spacecraft the size of a loaf of bread uh, that you could deploy it, you could shove a big old sail in it, deploy it, and actually do controlled solar sailing using only the uh, power, the pressure, the little tiny pressure of sunlight to change orbits. And we did that. And uh, this year, solar activity ramped up, which inflated the atmosphere and increased drag and pulled us down. But we're, uh, the spacecraft's gone, but the mission's not over for us. The team is now busily analyzing, analyzing, and uh, taking the time that was spent on operations to get out more information and publications and sharing with the public and the technical community to feed forward into uh, others uh, pushing the envelope of solar sailing. And part of that legacy, a really stunning photo album uh, of all those images that I know you are rightfully so proud of. Where can we find those online, Ray? I know they're at planetary.org, right? Oh, yes, they are. You can find them all on the Bruce Murray Space Images Library. You can also go to sail.planetary.org and find a link from there to the images. Yeah, and read uh, more about the mission. All right. Um, we have not one, but a couple of grant programs uh, that we can also be proud of this year. I thought I was going to speak for a few more hours about LightSail. You could, I know. But uh, how about we just pretend to continue recording, but now you talk about the grant. Oh, okay. We had two uh, grant programs, our two grant programs award grants to some amazing uh, individuals and teams. We have our ongoing Shoemaker Neo grant program, Near-Earth Object grant program that funds mostly amateurs, but also professionals around the world. We're celebrating our 25th anniversary of the program that was named for Gene Shoemaker, a pioneer in planetary impact and geology and the like. And uh, we gave out eight new awards, and they were spread across a fair amount of the world. And we've actually given out now a half million dollars, thanks to our members and donors, to these groups to upgrade their telescopes to do important work in tracking and characterizing near-Earth objects and, and even discovery, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere, while we wait for professional surveys to get up to speed there. So we had the Shoemaker Neo grants, and there will be another call for those in a few weeks. Uh, and then we started a new grants program, STEP. STEP grants, the science and technology empowered by the public. And this is a little much broader program to try to fill our science and technology profile by casting the net wide and uh, looking for groups that would uh, be able to achieve things, fill niches that are not being filled otherwise, and uh, push forward science or technology like we've been doing for our whole history, but this is a new way of doing it. So we awarded two of those. One to a, a team in UCLA doing SETI research, and this particularly will yield a citizen science project to help their research that you'll hear about in coming weeks and months. And then a group in Belgrade, Serbia, that is doing the technical term, I believe, is way-crazed mathematical modeling <laughs> uh, in order to extract physical properties of asteroids. Hopefully, it, it's a kind of pioneering kind of way of doing it in a way that hasn't been done before. We're excited about both programs. Uh, we actually have a second round of STEP grants we leapt in there with, and so we're actually evaluating that now, and uh, we'll have awards in a few months. Great stuff. We've been working on asteroid-related stuff continuously, but I am so glad that uh, we also are in the SETI game still with uh, that grant uh, to Jean-Luc Margot and his group at, uh, at UCLA. What can I say? I love reaching out to those folks who may or may not be out there. Um, 
Sarah, I have a grandson and a step-granddaughter waiting for their first Planetary Academy pass. It's so exciting that we finally have this program out. I mean, I know many of us, you included, Matt, got into space when we were just children. And it was part of the plan, even early on in the founding of the Planetary Society, that eventually we would find a way to reach out to children to help them get involved in space exploration and learning more about our place in space. So just a few months ago, we launched our Kickstarter for our Planetary Academy, which is our membership program for kids. And it was wildly successful. We were only trying to get maybe $50,000 to back this program. And our supporters around the world gave us over $100,000. Ultimately, at this point, we have over 1,000 new kid members in our program. And this is great because it, it doesn't just give the kids an opportunity to learn about space, but they can all feel like they're a part of this journey. Their membership in this program is helping to fund the programs that are just starting to support all these new bits of space technology and advance our exploration of space. So I know this would have meant a lot to me as a kid. And Bruce has been helping to write this program. And I'm so excited for everyone to get a chance to, to read his work. And the images we've been getting back of kids going through these magazines have made me just, you know, fills my heart with joy. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's a pretty gooey thing when it works out. <laughs> no, it's been, it's been great. And we're trying to put out information that'll be fun as well as teach them, but get them excited about space. And uh, right now we're targeting ages five to nine, but I think it's uh, applicable even broader. Maybe even you, Matt. Uh, <laughs> maybe. And uh, and we're it's it's just great. So I too am after all these, this time very excited that this program has crystallized, and they're pretty much everyone working at the Planetary Society has been involved in creation in some aspect of this program. With uh, Jennifer Vaughn, our chief operating officer, managing it. Bill Nye, of course. Uh, excited about it, involved with it, and then just everyone. I'll just shall I just list all the employees of the Planetary Society? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, when you uh, also spend those extra hours talking about light sail. I'm going to do that alone, aren't I? Yeah, you are. Okay. <laughs> but just imagine another 20 years. These kids who learned about space through this program coming up to us. I'm hoping that someday I meet some of them. But just imagine how many little scientists are going to go out and change what we know about the universe. It's mind-boggling. Change the world, as our boss likes to say. Um, yes, I, I'm getting these. I, I got these subscriptions for my, my grandson and my step-granddaughter. I'm sticking to that story. Uh, Casey, we're going to come back to you for uh, anything that you would like to add about the Planetary Society's good work underway in Washington. Advocacy. We had an extraordinary year for our advocacy program. Really happy with how it turned out. Really proud of our members for stepping up. We had another virtual day of action in the spring. We had 115 members do nearly 160 meetings in congressional offices virtually. And we really hammered home our top priorities, Neo Surveyor, which we just talked about, which got $50 million more dollars more than any other science mission increase this year in appropriations. We, we got a $40 million increase to planetary science in general which was great, one of the few science divisions to see an increase from the proposal over last year. And we saw a lot of our key priorities represented in the final Chips and Science Act, which uh, is authorizing a variety of NASA programs, Mars Sample Return, Stamp of Approval, Neo Surveyor, Stamp of Approval. And really critically, something I'm personally most excited about, techno signatures, the ability to look for signs of intelligent life is now again, officially the domain of NASA and government funding 
uh, that was previously banned uh, back in the 90s. So, so NASA can really start investing in really exciting, cutting edge opportunities to look for not just biosignatures, but technosignatures. Bruce Very is giving fun. me a look. No, I wasn't. I was leaning in to try to be encouraging. I just usually look. I I, did I misstate something? I, I have resting disapproval face, and yeah. uh, usually it's a benefit. No, this this is great, and I'm excited. And I actually was uh, sitting here with my disapproval face, thinking, is it appropriate to say how great Casey's done in the entire advocacy team? Because I really, you have. It's been a very successful year. And the only reason I hesitate to say that is because everyone at the Planetary Society has been doing great, including the other people on this call, except Matt. And um, <laughs> He's got to get these in. He's not going to have many more opportunities. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it has been a, a wonderfully successful year in this area. And speaking of not too many more opportunities, Ray, I understand that you want to close us with one more topic. Yes. So this is the very meta portion, I guess, where we talk about talking about planetary radio while we're on planetary radio. Um, <laughs> um, so obviously Sarah will be beginning solo on the show in January, but I just wanted to take a minute to say that it has been a privilege and a pleasure to watch Matt and Sarah become this dynamic duo during the transition. Sarah and Matt share a similar sense of wonderment about space that really is just so infectious. And I know so many planetary radio listeners have tuned into the show because it really highlights not just the science, but the people who make it possible. And you're both just such incredible storytellers. I'm so proud to know you both really. And my hat's off to both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I just like to add ditto. <laughs> <laughs> That's very eloquent, Bruce. Thank you. <laughs> Ray Paletta and Casey Dreyer. Ray, the Director of Content and Engagement for the Planetary Society. Casey's got a finger in the air. He's our Chief Advocate and Senior Space Policy Advisor. Casey? <laughs> Thanks for visualizing this for our listeners. I just found it was to, a good finger. It wasn't a bad finger, but it was no. Yeah, go it was ahead. The good ones. <laughs> to, to echo what uh, what Ray said so eloquently and, and Bruce ah. efficiently reiterated. Uh, it, <laughs> I'm very excited, Sarah, to see you take the reins next year, and I can't wait to uh, start listening to the show uh, under your leadership. And I'm super excited! And congratulations again. And Matt, obviously. We've done the space policy edition. I, I think I've said this before. I literally do not know what I'm going to do without you, but we will find a way. Uh, but it's been an honor to, to work with you on this for the last six years, particularly on that show. And of all the hosts I have come across in my travels, yours is the most human. Oh, <laughs> um, I was mentioning you, Ray, and you, Casey, because you're going to depart now. But everybody else, I hope, uh, who's listening, I hope you'll stick around because Bruce and Sarah and I will go into my very last segment of What's Up, the last one that I'll participate in as well. Ray and Casey, thanks so much for being part of this review of the year. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Cheers. Stay tuned. It'll make you laugh, make you cry. Hi, everybody. Bill Nye here, CEO of the Planetary Society. Everything we do, from advocacy for missions that matter, to funding new technology, to grants for asteroid hunters and sharing the wonder of space exploration with the world, only happens thanks to friends like you who share our passion for space. 
When you invest in the Planetary Fund today, a generous member will match your donation up to $100,000. Every dollar you give will go twice as far as we explore the worlds of our solar system and beyond, defend Earth from the impact of an asteroid or comet, and find life beyond Earth by making the search for life a space exploration priority. With you by our side, we'll continue to advocate for missions that matter for years to come. How about powering our work in 2023? Please donate today. Visit planetary.org slash planetary fund. Thank you for your generous support and happy new year. Hey, let's do this one last time. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. I am joined by the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Dr. Bruce Betts. May I say it again, the only other person who has been heard on every episode of Planetary Radio since we began a little over 20 years ago. Welcome. <laughs> you're going to get this. Hold it together. You're going you're gonna to get through this one. You're going to make it. Hi, Matt. If, if I can, you can. All right, man. We're good. And Sarah's going to help us. Yeah, you don't like want to. crying? You don't want to embarrass yourself in front of the new host. Oh, I think I already have. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, uh, we said you'd stick around, and there you are, your very first What's Up, and yet a week from now, you will be in my chair talking to the chief scientist. It's true, and I hope we keep going on with this tradition. If you will continue to join me, Bruce, if I have not scared you away yet. I would love to join. <laughs> It'll be such a relief after 20 years. Like I said, he's got to get him in now. I, I think that the dynamic is just going to be great. I just think it's going to build on what we've already had, which I know you've loved every moment of, Bruce. I have. See, that was see, my gift to you. Then he gets honest. What's up? As I mentioned, I think, last week, we've arranged for all the planets you can see uh, with just your eyes to be up in the sky, although Mercury will be dropping down below the horizon as your time on Planetary Radio will be doing. <laughs> I'll be back. Uh, if you're picking this up right after it comes out on December 28th, Venus and Mercury are very close together, but you're going to need a really clear view to the western horizon. If you get it, then that'll be really nice. Uh, if not, uh, you'll still see Venus getting higher and higher, super bright Venus over the coming weeks over in the west after sunset. And uh, we've also got, if you follow a line from Venus or just look for bright Jupiter up above and Saturn in between. So Jupiter's high in the sky and Saturn is looking yellowish and not as bright as the other two, but still bright in between. And follow a line from those all the way across the other side of the sky over east-ish and you'll see Mars, which is still bright, but uh, fading gradually as we grow farther apart from it. <laughs> Like we will be growing farther apart from you. Just radio. don't, just don't go there. It's okay. You'll make it. Okay, but I got a cool thing. Like my life after you leave planetary radio. No offense, sir. Uh, <laughs> this is one last time for you, man. Why am I calling you man? I am one. It's okay. I qualify. Okay. The quadrantid meteor oh, shower. Got it. What perfect timing! I finally pronounced it. Maybe slightly correct after twenty years. Uh, it peaks the night of January 3rd to the 4th. Uh, that's the good news, bad news. It is a full moon, so that wow. will wipe out a lot of the meteors. Other sort of bad news that even though this can be one of the biggest outputs, it's usually for a very brief time. It has a very sharp peak of a few hours, so 
best, if you're going to look, is the night of January 3rd, the 4th. Uh, you may get 20, 25 meteors from a dark site. There are a lot more that are maybe there. Take a chance, Matt. You won't be doing anything. <laughs> but move on to this week in space history. And uh, we marked this event, so you uh, probably remember it. Wild about Mars. Oh, yes. Yeah. Wham. Yeah. The event marking the landing of Spirit on Mars, the Spirit rover. And uh, right before that, and basically almost contemporaneous, Stardust flew through the coma of a comet and returned material to Earth a while later. And they were both wildly successful, and we had a big event for Wild about Mars. Planifest, yeah. It really was a blast, one of our big parties at the Pasadena Convention Center. And you were up there on stage, I think, right, at the lecture? I was. That was when they let me go on stage. And uh, I was yeah, now I... Had a lot to do with that one. It yielded a lot of good good stuff, just like your being with us has yielded a lot of good stuff. You're going to keep at this, aren't you? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I may not. Even I'm already tired of <laughs> doing that. All right, I've got a great <laughs> – we've had our guest series instead of Random Space Fact of Random Matt Kaplan Fact. So don't forget to add the reverb. Oh, yeah, definitely okay. have to have the reverb. Right. Oh, yeah, now they're going to know that it's not just my cool reverb voice after all this time. <laughs> His voice just does that. Of course it does. Random Matt Kaplan back. Don't forget to add the reverb. <laughs> <laughs> all right, according to Matt, and I actually believe him, which is amazing on several levels, Matt made it through high school without ever using cuss words. True? I think essentially true, yeah. I mean, there were temptations, but... I don't know why. I just didn't think it was appropriate. I've tried to make up for it since then, except when I'm on mic. Yes, I've heard you swear. um, I've said gosh darn at least several times. Oh, I forgot we were counting that. Yes, that's true. I don't think I've ever said this before, but that's really cute, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And by the way, I will give up my uh, secret of if you want to know more about Matt Kaplan. Well, first of all, come back next next show or – a real interview with Sarah. But one time before the show was big enough, uh, I got the opportunity at the first anniversary show in uh, November of 2003 where I interviewed Matt and asked some really weird questions, and that's where I got these really weird Matt facts. By re-listening to the show, you can check it out, end of November uh, 2003. And Matt actually said in the show that he would never let me do that again, and he never did. <laughs> You know, I thought that was much more recent, that interview. I don't know why I remember it that way, but we'll put up a link to that uh, on this week's show page, planetary.org slash radio. All right, we move on to the trivia contest, which is I asked you, after Matt retires as host, what job do you envision Matt doing? We got some good answers, and Sarah and I have uh, cogitated over the matter, contemplated and we have chosen ones to share with you and to award prizes to. I'm just going to back out of the way here and enjoy this. Please, go ahead. <laughs> just envision your future, Matt, doing these things. <laughs> right, first of all, I just want to say I was thinking more like professional wrestler. Uh, <laughs> I left that behind. It was too hard on the knees. Uh, demolition derby driver. Oh, I, was, I left that behind. It was too hard on the head. Well, we'll give the, the official ones, and I will, I will start out. Thank you all who sent us things. And as Matt always points out, we don't have time to read everyone. Uh, we appreciate all of them. 
from Torsten Zimmer, regular listener, regular contributor from Germany. I think Matt should write a book about his time as planetary radio host. What was his best and worst experience? His favorite interviews? What are the lessons for a successor? How can science best be communicated? Either that or run Twitter. Boy, that's a tough one. I, I, I like both of those uh, possible jobs. No, wait a minute. Why would I want to run Twitter? Why would anyone in their right mind want to run Twitter? <laughs> I got to say, if you ever do write a book, please give it to me first so I can learn all of your lessons like right now. You're already there. You don't. You don't and even give it to me that, so. before that, so I can redact several things. <laughs> <laughs> well, our second winner is Hudson Ansley from New Jersey, who said Matt should be on the Dear Moon flight. They need a good reporter. I'm ready. I would love to see you up there going around the moon, one way or another, Dear Moon or not. You should go to the moon, Matt. Yeah, I bet Bruce would too. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Send us all to the moon. Elon, if you're listening. We move on to <laughs> Olaf Franzen. Sorry if the pronunciation is incorrect. From Sweden. And I love this one because I could I could imagine this and it was funny for me to imagine. I would like Matt to narrate my daily life. <laughs> that way it would sound much more interesting. Bonus, I would get to hear that wonderful voice more than just once per week. And then uh, everyone throws in happy little messages like, thank for 20 years of fantastic radio, Matt. I've listened to every episode, and you will be missed. You're so welcome, Ola. Thank you very much. <laughs> but I was thinking we could take every episode of Planetary Radio, run it through an AI, and then create some kind of horrible AI concoction that just spits out your voice. How does anybody know that's not what's already happened? Thank you. I was trying to think of that. <laughs> well, those are our winners, but we did want to have one honorable mention for our poet laureate of Planetary Radio, Dave Fairchild, who wrote this beautiful poem, as always, which I got to read. It says, Matt will not retire. He would not know what to do. He'll pass the reins, then move the chains. So here's a sneak preview. I don't know if it's NASA or if SpaceX calls him soon, but Matt will soon announce that he's the next man on the moon. Did you notice that a lot of these are sending you away to space? Uh-huh. Did, and, you know, did, that's okay with me. Whatever the motivation is, it's okay with me. <laughs> there was one more that I, I just was blown away by, by Jean, Jean Lewin from Washington. You've got it in front of you, Sarah. Oh, I do. Jean Lewin wrote this beautiful backstory of Matt Man. It comes with some amazing images, which I'm, I'm hoping – it's not up to me for this one, but I'm hoping you put them up on the website because they are amazing. <laughs> but I will read the beginning of this, which is, Matt Mann, whose secret identity is Matt Kaplan, a financially comfortable American playboy philanthropist and radio personality, operates from his secret lair located deep beneath the headquarters of the Planetary Society in Pasadena. For nearly 20 years, he's been building this lair, unbeknownst to his colleagues. But one, his compatriot and sidekick, the Doctor. Love the Doctor Who reference. During this time, he has trained himself physically and intellectually in crafting a space-inspired persona, emerging to monitor the Pasadena streets at night. Do you have a secret alter ego, Matt? If I told you, you know what we'd have to do. I, I'd really enjoy it. And I can, I can promise you... Well, I can't promise you because I'm not the one who will do it, but I bet you that our associate producer, Mark, will be happy to put the wonderful images that Gene included with this 
on this week's episode page at planetary.org slash radio there. I am especially thrilled by seeing Bruce inserted into Nighthawks, the great painting by Edward Hopper, always one of my favorite paintings. And there is Bruce sitting at the diner counter with uh, his compatriots. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Of course, you in a superhero costume in the foreground is also pretty awesome. Yeah, I loved everything about this. It was hilarious, uh, except that I was a sidekick. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you don't have to wear that that startlingly blue suit. You might want to get a new costume designer, Matt. No, I think it's perfect. Where do we go from here? Well, usually we ask another trivia question, so I'm going to go ahead and follow the tradition. Here's a question for you on the anniversary of Spirit's landing on Mars. What hardware did the Planetary Society fly to Mars as part of the Spirit and Opportunity missions? You don't have to give a lot of detail, but what hardware did we fly to Mars? It's on Mars right now. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. And here's pretty much what you say after that, Sarah. (laughs) You have until January 11, 2023 at 8 a.m. Pacific time, that's a Wednesday, to get us, or really them, the answer to this one. And I'm just going to say one more time because it's my last chance. The winner will receive a Planetary Society kick asteroid. Say it with me now. He's really good. Do I put the reverb on that one? No, you don't even have to do it for that one. That was just perfect, man. Uh, Yes, a rubber asteroid will be yours. And with that, I think we're done, except to say... Bruce, it has been the most wonderful um, career. I was editing What's Up for last week's show just a couple of days ago, and I was cracking up while I did it. (laughs) It happens all the time. It has just been absolutely delightful, and I'm glad that we're not really saying goodbye. Sarah, you're going to have the best time over every episode of this show yet to come. uh, Talking to this guy over on the other side of me, and uh, you're going to have a wonderful time. I have one more thing. Talk a little bit while I grab something that I forgot about. Hey, Matt Kaplan. It's been an honor, sir. And I'm scared what he's digging for right now. Uh, Every week, it has been a consistent joy in my job, no matter what other things were going on, to do this show with you. And a pain when I forgot that I hadn't prepared yet. And I was talking to you in 15 (laughs) minutes, which is why you got so many messages of, can I have another 15 minutes? But other than that, it's been wonderful. Thank you. And I'm really looking forward to what's in the styrofoam box. That You saw it online. Oh, I already know what it is. Okay. Now he gets it in person. Cool, you, I don't think you've seen this. I don't think I've it's seen much this. much less scary. This is the opening of the styrofoam. Great sound. Ah, Make an ASMR out of that one. Oh, it's, a, it's the coffee mug with Planetary Radio logo on one side. And a picture of Matt and I uh, at the beach recording Planetary Radio. What's up? One of the weird places we recorded in the past. That's beautiful, Matt. I'm very happy with how it came out, and I think it's very appropriate. Have fun, folks. Hey, we will. You too. And uh, be a strange. Wait. (laughs) Don't be a stranger. But really, Matt, please come on my show. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that didn't take long. Bruce, take us out. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about Matt morphing into Sarah. No, just think about Matt. <laughs>
And his job as a professional wrestler, I don't care if it's hard on the knees or not, I want to see it. And hopefully his future of long walks on the beach chilling out. Yeah, that too. Thank you and good night. Bruce Betts is, for the time being, the chief scientist oh. of the Planetary Society and the program manager for LightSail. Sarah Alamed is the host of Planetary Radio. Thanks, Matt. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its beloved members. I'm proud to be one of them. The brilliantly talented space nerds Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. <laughs> <laughs>